Chapter One of the Sea Wolf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter One. I scarcely know where to begin, though I sometimes facetiously place the cause of it all to Charlie Fourasset's credit. He kept a summer cottage in Mill Valley under the shadow of Mount Tamalpais, and never occupied it except when he loafed through the winter months and read Nietzsche and Schopenhauer to rest his brain. When summer came on, he elected to sweat out a hot and dusty existence in the city and to toil incessantly. Had it not been my custom to run up to see him every Saturday afternoon and to stop over till Monday morning, this particular January, Monday morning, would not have found me afloat on San Francisco Bay. Not but that I was afloat in a safe craft, for the Martinez was a new ferry steamer, making her fourth or fifth trip on the run between Sausalito and San Francisco. The danger lay in the heavy fog which blanketed the bay, and which, as a landsman, I had little apprehension. In fact, I remember the placid exultation with which I took up my position on the forward upper deck directly beneath the pilot-house, and allowed the mystery of the fog to lay hold of my imagination. A fresh breeze was blowing, and for a time I was alone in the moist obscurity. Yet not alone, for I was dimly conscious of the presence of the pilot, and of what I took to be the captain, in the glass-house above my head. I remember thinking how comfortable it was, this division of labor, which made it unnecessary for me to study fogs, winds, tides, and navigation, in order to visit my friend who lived across an arm of the sea. It was good that men should be specialists, I mused. The particular knowledge of the pilot and captain sufficed for many thousands of people who knew no more of the sea and navigation than I knew. On the other hand, instead of having to devote my energy to the learning of a multitude of things, I concentrated it upon a few particular things, such as, for example, the analysis of Poe's place in American literature, an essay of mine, by the way, in the current Atlantic. Coming aboard, as I passed through the cabin, I had noticed with greedy eyes a stout gentleman reading the Atlantic, which was open to my very essay. And there it was again, the division of labor, the special knowledge of the pilot and captain which permitted the stout gentleman to read my special knowledge on Poe, while they carried him safely from Sausalito to San Francisco. A red-faced man, slamming the cabin door behind him and stumping out on the deck, interrupted my reflections, though I made a metal note of the topic for use in a projected essay, which I had thought of calling The Necessity for Freedom, a Plea for the Artist. The red-faced man shot a glance up at the pilot-house, gazed around at the fog, stumped across the deck and back, he evidently had artificial legs, and stood still by my side, legs wide apart, and with an expression of keen enjoyment on his face. I was not wrong when I decided that his days had been spent on the sea. "'It's nasty weather like this here that turns heads gray before their time,' he said with a nod toward Pilot House. 
I had not thought there was any particular strain, I answered. It seems as simple as ABC. They know the direction by compass, the distance, and the speed. I should not call it anything more than a mathematical certainty. Strain, he snorted, simple as ABC, mathematical certainty. He seemed to brace himself up and lean backward against the air as he stared at me. How about this here tide that's rushing out through the Golden Gate, he demanded, or bellowed, rather. How fast is she ebbin? What's the drift? Listen to that, will you? A bell buoy and we're atop of it. See him alderin' the course. From out of the fog came the mournful tolling of a bell, and I could see the pilot turning the wheel with great rapidity. The bell, which had seemed straight ahead, was now sounding from the side. Our own whistle was blowing hoarsely, and from time to time the sound of the other whistles came to us from out of the fog. There is a ferry-boat of some sort, the newcomer said, indicating a whistle off to the right. And there, do you hear that? Blown by mouth. Some scow schooner, most likely. Better watch out, Mr. Schooner Man. Ah, I thought so. Now hell's a-poppin' for somebody. The unseen ferry-boat was blowing blast after blast, and the mouth-blown horn was tooting in terror-stricken fashion. And now they're paying their respects to each other and trying to get clear, the red-faced man went on, as the hurried whistling ceased. His face was shining, his eyes flashing with excitement as he translated into articulate language the speech of the horns and sirens. That's a steam siren a-going it over there to the left, and ye hear that fellow with a frog in his throat? A steam schooner, as near as I can judge, crawling in from the heads against the tide. A shrill little whistle, piping as if gone mad, came from directly ahead and from very near at hand. Gong sounded on the Martinez. Our paddle wheels stopped, their pulsing beat died away, and then they started again. The shrill little whistle, like the chirping of a cricket amid the cries of great beasts, shot through the fog from more to the side, and swiftly grew faint and fainter. I looked to my companion for enlightenment. One of them daredevil launchers, he said. I almost wish we'd sunk him, the little rip. They're the cause of more trouble. And what good are they? Any jackass gets aboard one and runs it from hell to breakfast, blowing his whistle to beat the band, and telling the rest of the world to look out for him, cause he's comin' and can't look out for himself. Because he's comin'. And you've got to look out, too, right away. Common decency. They don't know the meaning of it. I felt quite amused at his unwarranted collar, and while he stumped indignantly up and down, I fell to dwelling upon the romance of the fog. And romantic it certainly was. The fog, like the mere shadow of infinite mystery, brooding over the whirling speck of earth and men, mere motes of light and sparkle, cursed with an insane relish for work, riding their steeds of wood and steel through the heart of the mystery, groping their way blindly through the unseen, and clamoring and clanging in confident speech the while their hearts are heavy with incertitude and fear. The voice of my companion brought me back to myself with a laugh. I too had been groping and floundering the while I thought I rode clear-eyed through the mystery. Hello, someone's coming our way, he was saying, and do you hear that? He's coming fast, walking right along. Guess he don't hear us yet. Wind's in the wrong direction. 
The fresh breeze was blowing right down upon us, and I could hear the whistle plainly, off to one side and a little ahead. Ferryboat, I asked. He nodded, and then added, er, he wouldn't be keeping up such a clip. He gave a short chuckle. They're getting anxious up there. I glanced up. The captain had thrust his head and shoulders out of the pilot house and was staring intently into the fog as though through sheer force of will he could penetrate it. His face was anxious as was the face of my companion, who had stumped over to the rail and was gazing with a like intentness in the direction of the invisible danger. Then everything happened, and with inconceivable rapidity. The fog seemed to break away as though split by a wedge, and the bow of a steamboat emerged trailing fog wreaths on either side like seaweed on the snout of Levithon. I could see the pilot house and a white-bearded man leading partly out of it on his elbows. He was clad in a blue uniform, and I remember noting how trim and quiet he was. His quietness, under the circumstances, was terrible. He accepted destiny, marched hand in hand with it, and coolly measured the stroke. As he leaned there, he ran a calm and speculative eye over us, as though to determine the precise point of the collision, and took no notice whatever when our pilot, white with rage, shouted, Now you've done it! On looking back, I realized the remark was too obvious to make rejoinder necessary. Grab hold of something and hang on, the red-faced man said to me. All his bluster had gone, and he seemed to have got the contagious of preternatural calm. And listen to the women scream, he said grimly, almost bitterly, I thought, as though he had been through the experience before. The vessels came together before I could follow his advice. We must have been struck squarely amidships, for I saw nothing, the strange steamboat having passed beyond my line of vision. The Martinez heeled over, sharply, and there was a crashing and rending of timber. I was thrown flat on the wet deck, and before I could scramble to my feet I heard the screams of the women. This was it, I am certain, the most indescribable of blood-curdling sounds that threw me into a panic. I remember the life-preservers stored in the cabin, but was met at the door and swept backwards by a wild rush of men and women. What happened in the next few minutes I do not recollect, though I have a clear remembrance of pulling down life-preservers from the overhead racks, while the red-faced man fastened them about the bodies of a hysterical group of women. This memory is as distinct and sharp as that of any picture I have seen. It is a picture, and I can see it now. The jagged edges of the hole in the side of the cabin, through which the gray fog swirled and eddied, the emptied upholstered seats littered with all the evidence of sudden flight, such as packages, hand satchels, umbrellas, and wraps, the stout gentleman who had been reading my essay, encased in cork and canvas, the magazine still in his hand, and asking me with monotonous insistence if I thought there was any danger, the red-faced man stumping gallantly around on his artificial legs and buckling life-preservers on all comers, and finally the screaming bedlam of women. This was it, the screaming of the women, that most tried my nerves. It must have tried, too, the nerves of the red-faced man, for I have another picture that will never fade from my mind. 
the stout gentleman is stuffing the magazine into his overcoat pocket and looking on curiously a tangled mass of women with drawn white faces and open mouths is shrieking like a chorus of lost souls and the red-faced man his face now purplish with wrath and with arms extended overhead as in the act of hurling thunderbolts is shouting shut up oh shut up i remember the scene impelled me to sudden laughter and in the next instant i realized i was becoming hysterical myself for these were women of my own kind like my mother and sisters with the fear of death upon them and unwilling to die and i remember that the sounds they made reminded me of the squealing of pigs under the knife of the butcher and i was struck with horror at the vividness of the analogy these women capable of the most sublime emotions of the tenderest sympathies were open-mouthed and screaming they wanted to live they were helpless like rats in a trap and they screamed the horror of it drove me out on deck i was feeling sick and squeamish and sat down on a bench in a hazy way i saw and heard men rushing and shouting as they strove to lower the boats it was just as i had read descriptions of such scenes in books the tackles jammed nothing worked one boat lowered away with the plugs out filled with women and children and then with water and capsized another boat had been lowered by one end and still hung in the tackle by the other end where it had been abandoned nothing was to be seen of the strange steamboat which had caused the disaster though i heard men saying she would undoubtedly send boats to our assistance I descended to the lower deck. The Martinez was sinking fast, for the water was very near. Numbers of the passengers were leaping overboard. Others in the water were clamoring to be taken aboard again. No one heeded them. A cry arose that we were sinking. I was seized by the consequent panic, and went over the side in a surge of bodies. How I went over I do not know, though I did know, and instantly, why those in the water were so desirous of getting back on the steamer. The water was cold, so cold that it was painful. The pang, as I plunged into it, was as quick and sharp as that of fire. It bit to the marrow. It was like the grip of death. I gasped with the anguish and shock of it, filling my lungs before the life-preserver popped me to the surface. The taste of the salt was strong in my mouth, and I was strangling with the acrid stuff in my throat and lungs, but it was the cold that was most distressing. I felt I could survive but a few minutes. People were struggling and floundering in the water about me. I could hear them crying out to one another, and I heard also the sound of oars. Evidently the strange steamship had lowered its boats. As the time went by I marveled that I was still alive. I had no sensation whatever in my lower limbs, while a chilling numbness was wrapping about my heart and creeping into it. Small waves with spiteful foaming crests continually broke over me and into my mouth, sending me into more strangling paroxysms. The noise grew indistinct, though I heard a final and despairing chorus of screams in the distance and knew that the Martinez had gone down. Later, how much later I have no knowledge, I came to myself with a start of fear. I was alone. I could hear no calls or cries, only the sound of the waves, made wordly hollow and reverberant by the fog. 
a panic in a crowd which partakes of a sort of community of interest is not so terrible as a panic when one is by oneself and such a panic i now suffered whither was i drifting the red-faced man had said the tide was ebbing through the golden gate was i then being carried out to sea and the life-preserver in which i floated was it not liable to go to pieces at any moment i had heard of such things being made of paper and hollow rushes which quickly become saturated and lost all buoyancy and i could not swim a stroke and i was alone floating apparently in the midst of a great primordial vastness i confess that a madness seized me that i shrieked aloud as the women had shrieked and beat the water with my numb hands how long this lasted i have no conception for a blankness intervened of which i remember no more than one remembers of troubled and painful sleep when i aroused it was as after centuries of time and i saw almost above me and emerging from the fog the bow of a vessel and three triangular sails each shrewdly lapping the other and filled with wind where the bow cut the water there was a great foaming and gurgling and i seemed directly in its path i tried to cry out but was too exhausted the bow plunged down just missing me and sending a swath of water clear over my head then the long black side of the vessel began slipping past so near that i could have touched it with my hands i tried to reach it in a mad resolve to claw into the wood with my nails but my arms were heavy and lifeless again i strove to call out but made no sound the stern of the vessel shot by dropping as it did into a hollow between the waves and i caught a glimpse of a man standing at the wheel and of another man who seemed to be doing little else than smoke a cigar i saw the smoke issuing from his lips as he slowly turned his head and glanced out over the water in my direction it was a careless unpremeditated glance one of those haphazard things men do when they have no immediate call to do anything in particular but act because they are alive and must do something but life and death were in that glance i could see the vessel being swallowed up in the fog i saw the back of the man at the wheel and the head of the other man turning slowly slowly turning as his gaze struck the water and casually lifted along it toward me his face wore an absent expression as of deep thought and i became afraid that if his eyes did light upon me he would nevertheless not see me but his eyes did light upon me and looked squarely into mine and he did see me for he sprang to the wheel thrusting the other man aside and whirled it round and round hand over hand at the same time shouting orders of some sort the vessel seemed to go off at a tangent to its former course and leapt almost instantly from view into the fog i found myself slipping into unconsciousness and tried with all the power of my will to fight above the suffocating blankness and darkness that were rising around me a little later i heard the stroke of oars growing nearer and nearer and the calls of a man when he was very near i heard him crying in vexed fashion why in hell don't you sing out this meant me i thought and then the blankness and darkness rose over me End of chapter 1